Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we just are so overjoyed as we sing these songs of praise that remind us of, of your greatness, remind us of your care for us, remind us of the ways that you are involved in our lives, that remind us of the salvation that you have provided through your Son, Jesus Christ, who willingly went to Calvary's cross, where he bore in his innocent, sinless body our sin and our shame. For that was the only way that we could have a place in your heaven, the only way we could be a part of your family, the only way we could pass from death to life. Thank you for so great a Savior. Thank you for so great a salvation. Help us to celebrate it in song. Help us to celebrate it as we study your word in our assured again of your care for us, assured again of your impact upon a life devoted to you. Lord, guide us as we study your word, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 26 is a great chapter, and of course we say that about everyone <laughs> every week, but... <laughs> It is a great chapter for a few reasons I want to share with you as we start this morning. It is the third time that Paul shares his testimony in the book of Acts. The third time. The first time is chapter 9. The second time is chapter 22. And now today, chapter 26, is the third time that Paul shares his testimony. How did he come to faith in Jesus Christ? What were the events surrounding his coming to faith in Jesus Christ? So we're going to see that once again this morning in Acts chapter 26. Also, this is the fifth time he presents a defense before the secular leaders. It's the fifth time that he presents a defense before the secular leaders. This morning it will be before Agrippa and Priscilla or excuse me, Bernice, before King Agrippa and Bernice, and uh, he will present his defense. And it's, it's less a defense and more an attempt to reach out to these secular leaders. That's what I love about Paul. He is on trial. Uh, the, the Jews want his life, and yet the thing that's on his heart is not getting out of the situation. The thing that's on his heart is to share what he believes about Jesus Christ, to share his faith in Jesus Christ with these leaders. So it's less a defense and more of a witness to these earthly leaders. Well, I want to point out a couple of things and then we'll, we'll look at the details, a couple of broad things. The first thing I want us to see in Acts chapter 26 is how thoroughly a life can be changed when Jesus Christ comes into that life. How thoroughly a life can be changed when Jesus Christ comes into that life. You know what I'm talking about. You've trusted Christ as your Savior. You know how your thoughts changed. You know how the direction of your life changed. You know how what you were living for changed. There's so much that changes after we come to faith in Christ. Well, Acts chapter 26 shows us how thoroughly a life can change. 
and it, and it does it in uh, an unusual way. For instance, if you'll look with me at chapter 26, and, and we'll go back to verse 1, so don't get worried about that. We will go back to verse 1. But if you look at Acts chapter 26, and look at verse 10, as Paul is uh, giving his testimony to these, to these uh, leaders, he says, And that is what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And then later in verse 12, On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Now, interestingly enough, Although the word apostle is not in Acts 26, uh, Paul was what they called in that day an apostolos of the Sanhedrin. And an apostolos of the Sanhedrin. That is, he was somebody who represented the Sanhedrin. He was somebody who represented uh, the, the force of the Sanhedrin. The word was used, the apostolos of the Sanhedrin, was used of an emissary. Was used of an emissary. Paul, at one time in his life, was an emissary of the Sanhedrin. Paul, at one time in his life, was somebody who went on the authority and on the commission of the Sanhedrin, went after believers, seeking to wipe them out went after believers seeking to arrest them, went after believers seeking their deaths. That's what Paul was. Think about that. Think about that. Paul was an apostolos, an apostle, an emissary of the Sanhedrin. And then think about the change that came into his life after he came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. He then became a true apostolos. Apostolos is the word from which we get apostle. He became a true apostle, a sent one, somebody sent with a mission, only this time his mission is not to destroy, this time his mission is to see lives saved. Things change. When you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, things change. And Acts chapter 26 shows us uh, uh, how this happened in Paul's life. At one time, he was an apostolos of the Sanhedrin. Now he is an apostolos of Jesus Christ. There's a second thing I want to point out here in um, Acts chapter 26. The key verse, I believe, of the chapter is verse 8. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Isn't that funny? People think it's, well, you're, you're talking something crazy. People rise from the dead, give me a break. Now, people will buy into reincarnation. They'll buy into all kinds of new uh, age mysticism. They'll buy into all of those things, but they'll tell you you're crazy if you believe in the resurrection. What? You believe in myths, and I believe in the resurrection, and you're telling me I'm crazy, I'm wrong? I love what Paul says. Why should anybody, why should anybody consider it incredible that God raises the dead? And, and throughout Acts chapter 26, and we'll see that as we get into the details of the chapter, throughout Acts 26, 
Paul gives us the testimony of the Old Testament. This is what the Old Testament told us to expect. The Old Testament told us there would be a resurrection from the dead. The Old Testament explained that concept. Paul talks throughout about the power of God. What is too hard for God to do? There's nothing too hard for God to do. Certainly not resurrection from the dead. There's the testimony of the Old Testament. There's the power of God. There's the testimony of Jesus Himself. Jesus Himself verified the resurrection. Jesus Himself verified the resurrection from the dead. And we'll, we'll get to that in just a few moments. There is the testimony then of eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses who saw Jesus alive from the dead. And one of those we're, we're encountering again here in Acts chapter 26 where Paul was an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Now, also, the third thing I want us to see before we get into all the details is this. I think the mo one of the most understood verses is verse 28. And uh, verse 28, if, if you remember it from your studies in the King James, and many of us started out, or maybe not many of us anymore, but uh, how many started out with King James? Yeah, quite a few of you started out with King James. And, and so many people uh, know verse 28. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. <laughs> see, see, that's why people love the King James. It's like, almost thou persuadest me. Uh, <laughs> and, and so it's, it's commonly misunderstood. Like, like Agrippa was that close to salvation. You know, kind of like uh, get smart. Maxwell Smart missed it by that much. See, not many of you remember Maxwell Smart. <laughs> I see that hand. <laughs> missed it by that much. That was one of his taglines. That's what you get the impression uh, about from, from the, the King James. It's like, uh, oh, he almost got there. He was so close to being a Christian, but... You know, and so it's given rise to songs. I didn't realize this until I did a little research into this. It, I knew it gave rise to a hymn, a hymn called Almost Persuaded, and uh, a hymn or a song, I'm not sure which it is. Uh, and uh, I did not realize until I was doing research in this that it also gave rise to, I think it was a country and western song called Almost Persuaded. Anybody here know the uh, country and western song? Oh, <laughs> again, I see that hand. Uh, it has interesting lyrics. It's an entirely different persuasion. Uh, he was dealing with his... At a, it starts out like this. These are the first words of the song. Last night, all alone in a bar room. Well, you know, it's, where, where's it going to go from there? <laughs> And, uh, of course, he was almost persuaded to cheat on his wife. That's what the, the whole thing was. But uh, uh, that doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that Agrippa was that close to being a Christian. And we'll see that again as we go through this passage. Now, as I mentioned, we're, we're going to see how thoroughly a life can be changed when Jesus Christ comes into that life. And that's what should happen for you and for me. 
uh, we should be different people today than we were. We should be different people today than we were. Vance Havner says this, in his journal, John Wesley tells us that a few days after Aldersgate, now Aldersgate was uh, Wesley's salvation experience. Aldersgate is the name given to Wesley's salvation experience. Havner says, in his journal, John Wesley tells us that a few days after Aldersgate, he awoke with Jesus' master in his heart and in his mouth. The true believer acknowledges Jesus not only as his Savior, but as Lord of his life. Um, in other words, I'm not talking about lordship salvation. Please don't accuse me of that. I do not believe that. That is not a true doctrine. But what he's saying here is that a person who has trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior should be in the process of making Jesus Christ Lord of their lives. How, how are we doing with that? How are you and I doing with that? A person who has trusted Jesus Christ as Savior should be in, in the process of giving over every part of our lives to Jesus Christ, making him Lord of our lives, master of our lives. Well, the true believer acknowledges Jesus, Havner says, not only as a Savior, but as Lord of his life. We have a strange species of believer these days who confess Christ as Savior, but whose life rejects him as master. A believer is also expected to be a disciple and a witness. We should be changed. We should be in the process of making Christ Lord over every part of our lives. We should be also a growing disciple and a growing witness. I tell you, I am so thrilled. Um, there's, there's a lot of difficulty in our world today, both in our nation as well as in the world. There's a lot of difficulty. And what I have noticed is there are more and more people like uh, Franklin Graham, for instance, who are running TV ads urging folks to come to faith in Christ. You know, there are a lot of people in our culture today who don't know where to turn, are really confused. And, and you, folks, that's our time. That is our time. Not to take advantage of people, but that is our time to tell them there is a better way. There is a better way. And I'm thankful to see Franklin Graham and others who are running TV ads trying to reach out. You and I need to be doing that on our own level with the people that God has given us. Leroy Imes said this, what do we do when our lives get out of focus and we're no longer doing what God has called us to do? Too often, nothing. Sometimes the blurring occurs so gradually that we don't even know that we're out of focus. All the more reason to keep our eyes on Jesus. There are hundreds of goal of good activities you can be involved in as a Christian. But what is most important? What is worth giving your life to? Jesus' primary objective was to help people walk in the light of God's Word and experience the salvation He offered. That's our job. To follow Him. 
That's our job to follow Him. To help people walk in the light of God's Word. To help people experience salvation. Folks, I don't know if there will be a better time in our lifetime to do that than now. Well, let's get into the details of Acts 26. We look at Acts 26 and verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, and, and Chris did a great job last week of explaining about Agrippa and Bernice and, and explaining the background and explaining the pomp and circumstance that was going on. <laughs> uh, all designed to make Paul feel little. You know, that believers loved, uh, unbelievers love to make believers feel little. And uh, so we have here, Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. Paul addresses Agrippa. He has already made his defense to Festus, so he doesn't necessarily uh, appeal to Festus, although Festus is there. He is making his appeal to Agrippa especially and to Bernice. He holds out his hand, one writer said, after the manner of an orator in that day, and he motioned, another writer said, with his chained hand. We find out in chapter 26 and verse 29 that Paul was in chains. Paul was in chains. Another way he was made to feel small before these great people of the world. He was in chains and he lifts his hand, no doubt his chained hand, and he motions Paul is thrilled because he has an opportunity not to defend himself, but he's thrilled because he has an opportunity to share the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ again with the great people of the day. That is just amazing how God arranged for him to speak to the greatest leaders of that day. Not, not great in the sense that they are great people, but great in the sense that they have a lot of power. They have a lot of power, and God gives Paul the opportunity to share his testimony. Paul thrills, one writer said, with, an with such an opportunity to make known the message which was his life's mission to proclaim. Now, one writer pointed out how different Paul's testimony, the testimony we're about to see in Acts 26, pointed out how different Paul's testimony is from contemporary testimonies, the, the kind of testimonies we have today. Uh, he, he kind of uh, uh, theorized ab about a Christian talk show where somebody, some famous person, gives their testimony. Isn't that always the ones that give their testimony, the, the famous ones? Uh, I would rather have a common, ordinary Christian's testimony, but now I'm getting off the track. Okay. And he... He says this, and I'm quoting. The Christian talk show host smiled and said, We are so thrilled to have a famous Christian with us today to share his testimony with us, St. Paul. And then you can almost see them holding up the applause sign. Tell us, Paul, or should I call you Saint? Which do you prefer? Paul, just Paul the Pharisee, would be fine, Jim. Great, Paul. Tell us about all the wonderful things that happened to you when the Lord Jesus came into your life. Well, let's see. 
First, I was struck blind. I got over that, but then somebody tried to kill me. And I had to escape in a basket. Then they stoned me. And on and on. That's, that's Paul's testimony. That's Paul's testimony. His life got harder in many ways after becoming a believer. The writer makes this point, and I think it's a good point for you and me to consider today. Today, many contemporary Christians are either suspicious of or bored by the hackneyed stereotypical accounts of personal conversion experiences tirelessly reiterated at testimonial services in some churches or narrated on Christian talk shows. After hearing the 10,000th account of what Jesus did for me when he came into my life, can we blame those who flee from this radically subjectivized and relentlessly experiential approach to the Christian faith? I was miserable, then I found Jesus. Now my life is fulfilled and I am happy. We have heard this testimonial pattern a thousand times. Note that when compared to Paul's testimony before Agrippa, this pattern becomes, comes up short. First of all, nowhere does Paul say that he was miserable or felt the need for anything else in his life. Unlike modern people, Paul did not conceive of religion before or after his Damascus Road experience as primarily a matter of self-fulfillment. We see salvation today as a matter of self-fulfillment. Paul did not see that See it that way. He saw it as the fulfillment of what God was doing in this world and doing in his life, and God was completing it. Why do we have so many Christians today who are half committed to Jesus Christ? Well, because they chose him, so I guess they can along the way decide not to choose him. Paul didn't see it that way. Nowhere does he say he was miserable or he hadn't felt a need for anything in his life. Secondly, the writer says, Luke goes on to great lengths to demonstrate that nobody finds Jesus, Jesus finds us. Paul was not on his way to Damascus searching for anyone other than Christian heretics. The initiative in all these stories of change and turning around is God's. Luke would know nothing of our rather smug declarations of spiritual expertise which believes that I found Jesus, I took Jesus into my life, I gave my life to Christ. For Luke, most of the traffic on the bridge between us and God is moving toward us. And then finally, the writer said, there's the question of happiness as a result of conversion to Christianity. Well, Paul, he says, must have felt joy at being God's instrument and at being part of the good news to Israel and the Gentiles, yet the man who testifies before Agrippa does so in chains. He has been beaten, stoned, imprisoned. It would be difficult to claim that meeting Jesus has solved all of Paul's problems. In fact, meeting Jesus has been from the very first the beginning of problems Paul would surely have avoided and would not have wished upon himself. Let's not lose the wonder of salvation. Let's not lose the wonder that God can take a life, a life going in the wrong direction, a life living for the wrong things, and turn that life around and turn that life around and put it in the 
the right direction. That doesn't mean every problem will be solved. As the writer pointed out, many of Paul's problems, if not all of his problems, began after he came to faith in Christ. That may be your testimony as a believer in Christ, that after you came to faith in Him, everything didn't become happy. There were challenges in your life. Challenges in my life. But we had somebody we could turn to. We had somebody who was in our lives, somebody who cared for us so much that he sent his only son to Calvary. Well, a couple of observations that one writer made about Paul's witness in this chapter. He presents facts, not just feelings. He talks a lot about the scripture, a lot about what the scripture has to say. His facts are supported by his personal experience with the risen Christ. One thing we see here in Acts 26 is that Paul has seen the risen Christ. That's why he's qualified to be an apostle. That's why he's qualified to be an apostle. And thirdly, the thing we see here, the third observation about this witness of Paul is that, and and and. Please really pay attention to this one. The third one is this, that Paul really knows and respects the recipients of his witness. When you and I share our faith in Jesus Christ with others, we need to have a respect for them. Even if they're living, and they probably are living a lifestyle we don't approve of, and a lifestyle that we would but by the grace of God have been delivered from. It doesn't give us any reason to look down our noses at unbelievers. There's no reason to look down our noses at unbelievers. I like to say, and you've probably heard it if you've been here any period of time, that Christians are not better than non-Christians. They are better off than non-Christians. They are better off. I don't have time, but sometime look at Titus chapter 3 where, where Paul says a similar thing about remembering where we came from. Some of us become Christians and we're Christians so long that we forget we were something else before we became Christians. It's easy over 10 or 20 or for some of us 40 or 50 years since we come to, came to know Christ as Savior. It's easy for us to forget how lost we were, to forget how much we needed Jesus Christ, to forget how much we are like the non-believers we look down our noses at today. So I think that's an important thing as this writer said, he knows and respects the recipients of his witness. Well, I told you as we started out, this is the fifth of Paul's testimonies before the leadership. The first was on the steps of the Antonio Fortress. The second was before the Sanhedrin, just in case you forgot. The third was before Felix. The fourth was before Festus. And now he is presenting his testimony to Agrippa. Uh, the, it breaks down like this, and you're going to see this as we go through. 
Verses 1 to 3 is Paul's introduction. Verses 4 to 8, Paul rehearses his past in Judaism. Verses 9 to 11, he talks about how he persecuted Christianity. Verses 12 to 15, he explains how he came to faith, how he was converted. And in verses 16 to 18, he talks about his commission. Some key thoughts one writer shared about this witness. Faith in a risen divine Christ is the heart of Christianity. Paul is communicating that faith in a risen divine Christ, Messiah, is the heart of Christianity. The second key thought about his testimony, the resurrection is attested by competent human witnesses. The resurrection is attested by competent human witnesses. And thirdly, the message of salvation is intended for all people. The message of salvation is intended for all of mankind, humankind. Well, Verses 1, 2, and 3, Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Paul motioned with his hand, began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Several things here. Uh, Chris told us about Agrippa last week. Agrippa was a practicing Jew. He was well acquainted with Jews and with Jewish issues. He was an expertise, in fact, and in, in, had expertise in Jewish matters. He had a reputation for promoting Jewish interests. He had a reputation for promoting Jewish interests. Uh, so that's what Paul is talking about. He's not gilding the lily here, when he says that about Agrippa, it is uh, true that Agrippa uh, had expertise. And uh, uh, interestingly, Paul says to him, therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, now that was code. And many of us creature, uh, preachers, uh, we, we, I don't know what made me say that. We lost a good friend to the church this week. Uh, somebody who helped us, he and his wife helped us to remodel the old building down on Spring Street. He, uh, he went into heaven about two Mondays ago. And he used to call here and he would ask for the creature. And uh, the secretary at first said, somebody's on the phone asking for the creature. <laughs> and I assured her that everything was okay. Uh, he was talking about the preacher. And, uh, but uh, uh, we preacher types uh, have a similar thing. What Paul meant when he said, I beg you to listen to me patiently, is I'm going to be long-winded. <laughs> I am going to be long-winded. So please bear with me. All right. That, that's the introduction. But I, I want you to see here Paul's purpose was not answering the charges. Paul's purpose was not answering the charges against him. They were capital charges, so they were serious charges, although Acts 25.25 25 says that he has been exonerated. Well, we can look at 25.25. 25. 
uh, he has been exonerated of the capital charge. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. So in a sense, the threat of the capital charge was kind of muted a bit at this point. But what I want you to see is Paul's purpose here is not answering the charges against him. Uh, his purpose is to prove that he has not violated Jewish belief. He has not violated Jewish belief. What he will show all throughout his testimony here is that his purpose is to prove that uh, the resurrection is part of Jewish belief about the Messiah and that Jesus fulfills this belief. What Paul believed and what Paul preached and what Paul taught and what Paul went across the world sharing with especially Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles alike, but he was especially an apostle to the Gentiles, what Paul was sharing was no innovation on his part. You see, that's what the Jews were trying to say, is that this was some kind of uh, heresy. This was some kind of innovation on Paul's part. And what Paul is trying to show is this, what I teach about Jesus Christ, what I teach about the resurrection is not an innovation. It was right there in the Old Testament. And if you had studied it properly, had your mind open to it, you could have seen it. He's not presenting a defense as much as he's showing that he wasn't violating Judaism at all. Old Testament promises are bound up in the resurrection. One of the great passages of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 to 53, 12, about the suffering servant, about the Messiah, includes not just the suffering of the Messiah, but includes the resurrection. He shall see his progeny, so to speak, his spiritual children. So even a passage such as that about the suffering servant, about the Messiah, includes not just the death and burial of the Messiah, of the suffering servant, but it also teaches the resurrection of the suffering servant. That's just one of many passages, and Paul is trying to say, to show that he wasn't violating Judaism at all. Old Testament provinces are bound up in the resurrection. What Paul is trying to do is show and answer how references to the suffering servant relate to the kingdom. Well, verses 4 to 8 is the second part of Paul's message. It's his history in Judaism. We read in verses 4 to 8, the Jews all know the way I, I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify if they're, they're willing that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial. Do you, do you see what Paul's doing there? He's showing that what he's teaching isn't an innovation. What he's teaching is not some kind of heresy or heretical teaching. What, pe what he is teaching is what is in the Old Testament Scriptures. It's because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I'm on trial today. 
This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Paul was a devout Pharisee. If you want to see more about Paul's background, uh, read sometime, not in the next few moments, Read Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul was a devout Pharisee. Paul's message is no innovation. Rather, it is the fulfillment, the suffering and resurrection of the Messiah is expected from the Old Testament. The promise of worldwide blessing to come through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, the promises of the coming of Jesus and His resurrection, they're all there. It's nothing, it's no innovation on Paul's part. It's no innovation on Paul's part. Israel's hope involves the resurrection of the dead. Jesus Himself defended the resurrection in Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 32. That's Matthew 22, verses 23 to to 32, and we don't have time to turn there, but that is the passage where the, the religious leaders tried to trap Jesus about the seven brothers who married a, a, a woman. The first brother married the, the woman, and he died, and the second brother married the, according to the Leverite law. Uh, and, and they thought, because they didn't believe, the, the Sadducees especially didn't believe in the resurrection, so they said, okay, in... in uh, Heaven, whose wife is she going to be? Ah, we got you. And Jesus said, you don't know the scripture. You don't know what you're talking about. And heaven will be like the angels, neither marrying nor giving in marriage. They couldn't trap him. But in, his, in their illustration, in his answer to them, he defends the resurrection he defends the resurrection. And Paul says, it's, 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 in a sense, it's utterly amazing that the Jews should oppose the teachings of the prophets and the teachings of the fathers and the teachings of the Old Testament. Well, verses 9-11, Paul talks about his persecution of Christianity. Verse 9 I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many times I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Paul was so committed to Judaism is what he's trying to share here. He was fanatically committed to Judaism. And he tried to destroy the church. He tried to destroy the church. He tried to cause believers to blaspheme. That meant to recant their belief in Jesus Christ. Tried to make them blaspheme the name of Christ and then renounce their faith. I wonder what that felt like for Paul. Do you ever think about that? 
he was behind the arrest and deaths of many who embrace the faith that he now understands and embraces. Can you imagine? what that must be like for Paul to recount that, how embarrassing it must be for him to share and him to admit to who he was, to what he was. What were you and I like before Christ came into our lives? For many of us, there would be things we wouldn't want to share, wouldn't there? But Paul admits who he was. This is as far as we're going to get, so I want to close with, with this uh, story. It's a true story. William Barclay shares it. There was a famous evangelist called Brownlow North. In his early days, he had lived a life that was anything but Christian. Once, just before he was to enter the pulpit in a church in Aberdeen, he received a letter. This letter informed him that its writer had evidence of some disgraceful thing which Brownlow North had done before he, came to, before he became a Christian. And it went on to say that the writer proposed to interrupt the service and to tell the whole congregation of that sin if he preached. Brownlow North took the letter into the pulpit. He read it to the congregation. He told of the thing that once he had done, and then he told them that Christ had changed him and that Christ could do the same for them. He used the very evidence of his shame to turn it to the glory of Christ. That's what Paul is doing here. He's using the very evidence of his shame to turn it to the glory of Christ. Oh, think about it, folks. Think about what we've been forgiven. Think about how great it is to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. And if you don't yet know him, don't let the things you've done stop you. Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross for those very things. Put your trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for such a great example as Paul. Thank you for his willingness to share the most raw parts of his life with us. for he cared that others should come to know Christ as Savior. Help us to reach out in these difficult days to those who are confused and hurting. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.